The following sermon audio is from Love City Church, Cincinnati. More audio and information about Love City Church can be found at www.mylovecitychurch.org. Turn with me, if you would, to Titus chapter 3. We're continuing this week in our series uh, through the book of Titus. We've been taking it verse by verse. And uh, this has been one of the most life-giving and faith-affirming series that we've ever done for me. Uh, I have seen God move through and orchestrate some almost too good to be true timing as we've gone through this book, um, just verse by verse. And I, I, for one, will be leaving this series better than I came into it for sure. Uh, just really encouraged by what we've read and studied together in the book of Titus. I'm going to start uh, in chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. We'll read to verse 8 together, okay? Remind them to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good deed, to malign no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing every consideration for all men. For we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. But when the kindness of God our Savior and His love for mankind appeared, He saved us, not on the basis of deeds, which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior." So that being justified by his grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This is a trustworthy statement. And concerning these things, I want you to speak confidently so that those who have believed God will be careful to engage in good deeds. Amen. Go back to uh, the beginning of the chapter there. We're going to start in verse 1 and uh, just spend some time in the Word together here. Verse 1 says, remind them to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient and ready for every good deed. Okay, so um, first of all, I want to say that that is, is a pretty wide and sweeping decree from Paul, but I want to give you a couple examples to let you know that there are times when um, being subject to rulers and authorities uh, is, is not the right thing to do. I know he didn't say that, but he, I think he's assuming somewhat we have some biblical background and knowledge when we read that. And uh, we would know these situations, right? So first of all, I would call to your attention um, the case of Daniel and Daniel 6, right? So Daniel is a high advisor for King Darius in that time. Um, and really, he's the most respected among them because God's hand was upon him, very wise. Uh, the king favored him. And uh, he had some other advisors. And uh, how many of you can guess what happened when one guy was kind of favored by the king and all these other guys were supposed to be on his level? How, how were they feeling? Jealous, that's right. They were jealous, a bunch of little pansies, and so they make a plan how they're going to get rid of Daniel, because they know Daniel's a, a man that's faithful to God, and so uh, they go to the king, and they start kind of um, buttering him up and saying, oh, great King Darius, you know what? We think you're so amazing that what you should do is make a decree that over the next 30 days, nobody should make a, a plea or a prayer or ask anything of anyone other than you I think you're just, you're just worthy of that, O king. And the king's like, you know what? You're right. I am that awesome. I'm going to do that. So he makes the decree. The problem is these guys were doing that because they knew Daniel wouldn't listen to it. They knew Daniel was still going to pray to God just like he was before. And so they go. Uh, they find him violating this decree, right? So the law of the land, the decree of the authority of that time was, you will not do this. Daniel's like, well, I'm still going to do it, right? He goes, prays in his room. The guys are sneaking around the corner. They find him. They go back to the king. Hey, king, remember that decree you made? People should get jacked up if they went against your decree, right? And he's like, yeah, they should. I'm the king. And they're like, well, Daniel did. And he's like, oh, darn, because he really likes Daniel, right? But he knows he has to stick to it. And so Daniel ends up getting thrown in the lion's den, right? So if you hadn't recognized the story yet, you probably do now. So uh, the king throws him in the lion's den, and even as, as they're shutting him in there, the king's like, may your God protect you, because, you know, Darius really kind of knows what's going on here. Uh, says the king doesn't sleep at all that night. He's totally freaked out by the whole situation. He runs back out there in the morning, calls down, Daniel, did your God protect you? Yes, O king. My God shut the mouth of the lions because I was found blameless in his sight. Uh, 
they pulled Daniel up out of the lion's den, and then all the advisors that set the whole thing up, them and all their family got thrown in the lion's den, and before they hit the ground, the lions had torn them apart. And here's the next really cool thing that happens. The king says, based on what I just observed, everybody in my kingdom is now going to serve the God of Daniel. Boom, right? And so we see some civil disobedience there being the absolute uh, right response, right? And so um, there are some times when governmental authorities will try to impose something that is directly contrary to God's word, uh, i.e., you know, you're going to worship me now. Well, no, I'm not going to do that, actually, right? So there are times when civil disobedience is, is the correct answer. Um, secondly, there are times when so-called religious leaders will make rules that are contrary to God's word. Uh, Peter and John in Acts 4, um, there's a guy that's, that's healed through their ministry. A bunch of people start listening to what they're saying. Of course, they're talking a lot about Jesus because they're kind of on that train. And uh, these, these Sadducees are not thrilled about it because they see that robbing their power base. And so they come up, they arrest Peter and John. Then they pull them into this council situation the next day, start firing questions at them. Um, and, and it says some cool stuff in there. It says they, they perceived that Peter and John were untrained men, but it was clear they had been with Jesus. Uh, just, you know, simple fishermen, simple guys, but something that was clear about them that they had been with Jesus. Um, that's kind of my life verse, because I'm just, just a simple hillbilly, but I just want it to be said of me that I've been with Jesus, man. I just, I just hope that's clear by the way I speak and live and, and, and what I do and, and, and that I reflect God's love to those around me. Um, so that's kind of, that's a verse I really draw strength from, but... Uh, they, they knew that they had been with Jesus. However, they weren't that concerned about that. So they, they started to command them and say, um, you're not going to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. We are the religious authority, and we are telling you right now, you will no longer walk around these streets and say stuff about Jesus rising from the dead and all that mess. You're not going to talk about it anymore. And Peter said, <laughs> uh, here's the deal, bro. We'll leave it up to you to judge whether or not we should listen to you or to God, but we will not be silent about the things that we have seen and heard. And uh, so those guys did represent or had kind of, at that point, were the self-appointed religious authority. Peter was like, you can step on with that mess, brother. I'm serving the king. Not going to listen to that, right? And so I'm, I'm, I'm showing you times and I'm showing you examples where... Uh, Pretty much at any point, if you want kind of a grid with how to judge what's going on, if anybody's trying to get you to do something that directly contradicts what God has told us in his word, no deal, right? And no matter the cost. Okay, because they were threatening Peter and John, like, we're going to make life real hard for you. And they're like, well, you go ahead and do that, because we're not going to be silent. Man, if that don't get you excited, there's something wrong with you, you're asleep, man, come on. That's how I want to live. I don't care what it costs me. I don't care what people think about me. I can't be silent about what I've seen and heard. I can't be silent about how good Jesus has been to me. I can't be silent about what's happened on the inside of me because I know what it was like before. Amen. Praise God. Uh, another piece uh, and, and a situation out of church history, uh, Martin Luther on October 31st, 1517, defiantly nailed a copy of his 95 thesis to the door of the Wittenberg Castle. And this is where, essentially, that document was a bunch of questions, and he was posting to the Catholic Church a debate on what is the legitimacy of indulgences, because there had been this doctrine that had risen in the Catholic Church where you could pay money, and uh, that would, you know, get, get your grandma out of purgatory or get you out of hell. Pretty much, you could, you could buy salvation and justification. <clears throat> you know, they were stretching for a verse on that one, yes? Yes, they didn't have one, right? So uh, Martin Luther's like, hold on, we need to talk about this. Um, and so uh, yet, yet another that was kind of the religious authority in that time, he knew he was going to be persecuted for what he was saying, but the reality is the truth was not being taught, and he wasn't going to stand for it. And I'm thankful because pretty much everything after that has to do with why we're standing here today, not um, having somebody just tell you what the Bible says in Latin, but don't read it yourself, right? That, the Protestant Reformation kind of was born out of that movement. And so I'm real thankful for Martin Luther having the guts to do that. Um, we as followers of Christ have our first and greatest allegiance pledge to our Savior King, period. 
Uh, when government or supposed religious authorities teach contrary to his word, we cannot submit or obey to that. We will not. These are the only exceptions, however, to this otherwise sweeping command to be subject and obedient to those in authority, right? So um, you don't have a verse that says, the government's oppressing me by speed limits. I'm going to just do what I want, right? No. That, that, the fact that you should stay under a certain speed limit on the highway for the safety of everybody is not in direct contradiction to God's word. And so don't stretch what I'm saying to mean something that I'm not. Pretty much it's going to come down to somebody trying to force you to worship someone other than God. We're not going there. Not going to do it. I don't care who says it. I don't care what the consequences are. Not me. I don't believe you would either. Amen? Amen. Well, that would never happen. Brush up on church history, guys. Um, So those are the only exceptions when people do stuff like that um, to this otherwise sweeping command that... uh, Paul gives us we should be subject to those in authority. Uh, John Gill was a uh, Baptist minister, uh, late 1700s, I think. He said this, uh, Here were many Jews in the island of Crete and the Cretans themselves. They were prone to mutiny and rebellion, to which may be added that the false teachers and the Judaizing preachers that had gone among them despised dominion and were not afraid to speak evil of dignities and taught the saints to abuse their Christian liberty and use it for a cloak of maliciousness. Do you catch that? That's the overcorrection of what I just told you. I believe Daniel did the absolute right thing. No, king, I will not pray to you. God is my God. I absolutely believe Peter and John did the right thing. Sadducees, or, uh, yeah, Sadducees move on with your mess. We're going to keep talking about Jesus. That's the end of that story. Absolutely. However, uh, we could take that steps further, and we could try to stretch what we hear about Christian liberty in the scriptures and use it as a cloak for maliciousness. That will not do. Um, and, and when they did that, it was, he said it was to the great scandal of the Christian religion. Um, God is glorified when we work within the bounds of the society that he's placed us and the time that he has placed us as long as they are not asking us to do something contrary to God's word. Our obedience and submission within those parameters brings glory to God and helps us to be missionaries within that context. Uh, The reality is that because of pride, we often think ourselves the exception to the rule. Uh, I I would also say to you that I have seen the fruitfulness of submission to the law of the land, especially when it comes to humble acceptance of responsibility for wrongdoing. Um, I have been, this this is the absolute truth, I have been in the courtroom with somebody Uh, And this happened to me more than once with different people, where I've been in a courtroom with somebody, and I have watched this judge who, it's a judge in this area, who is well known for being a a merciless uh, executor of the law. They're going to throw the book at you. If you're in front of them, you're going to get it. Uh, and, And they're known for that. And we were in there. The person I was with was the last one, and we watched everybody else, I mean, I'm talking get hammered. Whatever they could have got, they gave it to them. And then, and then the person that I was with steps up, and I, I promise to God, Love City, I watched the countenance on this judge's face change. Boom. As soon as they stepped up there, it was like the, the whole direction and, and the whole spirit of the room changed. And I, it felt like that judge was talking to this person I was with like they were friends. I mean, they're, they're up there laughing, cutting jokes. It was unbelievable. And they were to- totally, mercy was given. They, they didn't get, hand- I mean, they, they could have got very serious penalties for what was happening. God's mercy was totally shown to them that day. Because they went there trusting God, yet working within the parameters of the legal system. And that's not the only time I've seen that happen. It, it, it happened it's happened other times where I've seen people not get what they should have got. Because God showed up. And so... Uh, there's something to be said for that and the fact that God works within uh, the systems that uh, he approves of. So uh, it says, after being subject to rulers and authorities, uh, and to be obedient, it says to be ready for every good deed. We'll move off of uh, subject to rulers and authorities because if you guys get much more excited about that, I don't know if we'll be able to contain this place. Might have to get the fire marshal in here to calm you down. Because you guys are pumped on that one, aren't you? <laughs> Woo! Okay. We'll keep going. Uh, it says, to be obedient and to be ready for every good deed. Um, 
There's debate on whether or not this to be ready for every good deed is actually tied to the first statement, like that you should be subject to rulers and, uh, and authorities and obedient uh, to be ready for every good deed. Some people think that's tied to that. Some people don't. I think it does, and I think it, it goes together because what I believe he's saying is that obedience and submission to the authorities keeps you from wasting time and money that oftentimes you do when you're disobedient to the authorities. Some of you have maybe never been in trouble with the law. Some of you have. Um, if you mess around and disobey the authorities, can uh, all of a sudden a bunch of time and money that could have been spent for gospel influence, can that go out the window? Anybody ever experienced something like that before? Yeah, yeah, the rest of you are lying. Okay, all right. Uh, I know some of y'all, and I know some of y'all's hands should have been in the, in the air, and it wasn't, so that's all right. We'll leave it alone. I'm not going to call people out. I'll talk to you later. Okay, um, I, I think that goes together. Um, and, and when we don't do that, it, it leaves you with, so when you are obedient and you, and you do submit to authorities, it leaves you with more time and more money. Both of those things allow you to do more good works that bring glory to the Father. And so I do think that statement's kind of all together. Uh, okay, so we're in verse 2 now. It says, to malign no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing every consideration for all men. This is similar uh, to Paul's encouragement to the Philippians that they consider every other person more important than themselves. Uh, and he gives this additional command to malign no one. Or, and what he's saying, malign, he's saying to speak evil of no one. Um, and, and verse 3 will give us some help with how to do that. So let's read verse 3. It says, For we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. So I think verse 3, and, and there's, a, he said, there's a four there. He's saying, don't malign anyone, don't speak evil of anyone, um, you know, show consideration for all men, for or because you once also were, right? And then he goes through the list. Um, so the, the reality is we are constantly prone to think more highly of ourselves than we ought which automatically skews our perspective negatively towards others. So Paul knows that, and he helps us with that. He's saying, be kind, gentle, peaceable towards others, consider others more important than yourself, because you once, too, were a wretched mess. <laughs> Pastor Paul, man, you got to like him. He just gets the hammer out and swings. Um, the reality is that we are all tempted to think, we're better than we are, and that automatically skews our perspective, and we see others in a, in a more negative light. The reality is we were all wretched, we were broken and hopeless in our sin, and, and we still struggle against it today, right? So we're still working through that. We're still walking out uh, and working through our salvation with fear and trembling, and so that should help our perspective when we're tempted to harshly judge others. Um, and the reality is, based on all of that, knowing that we were wretched, broken, and hopeless, and, and yet still struggling against temptation of sin, it, it should make us be not so concerned with our own self-esteem, but we should be concerned that God and His Word are most highly esteemed. Um, I realize there's a lot of books and a lot of shows and sweet quotes trying to boost your self-esteem, and I don't want you to be like down on yourself all the time, but I want you to be more like up on Christ. and Like, if you contemplate more about who he is and what he's done, the only fact you aren't, and the only reason you aren't a wretched mess and broken today, the only reason you do have any reason to have any esteem whatsoever, it's not really got much to do with self. It's got a whole lot to do with him. And so to contemplate his goodness and his finished work on our behalf and, and his beauty and his love and the fact that any good thing in us is really a reflection of something that's coming from him anyways, that helps us to kind of Keep all that esteem stuff in, in, the, in the right order. And it helps us to be humble in the way we deal with others. Um, and the reality is we all struggle with this. Um, we struggle to believe we are affirmed in Christ, and so we look down on others because that oftentimes makes us feel better ourselves. Um, you know, many times if we're struggling with sin, it, it, just, it just helps me feel a little better if I can look around and find someone sinning a little dirtier and worse than me. Well, at least I'm not that bad. Well... Don't do that. <laughs> don't do that. Um, lean on Christ when you're struggling. Don't, don't affirm yourself and, and, and try to feel better by talking bad about somebody else or thinking bad about somebody else. That's just perpetuating the problem. It's in no way uh, improving anything. And so uh, 
we, we all struggle with this. We all struggle to believe we're affirmed in Christ. That feeds our tendency to look down on others. Um, you might say to me, because your background you know, would line up with this statement, you, you might say, but wait, I grew up in church. Uh, you know, I've never smoked, cussed, drank, or stolen anything. Uh, so I don't do that, right? Because I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm doing pretty good. And I would say to you, that's great, but your prideful tendency for self-assurance is more dangerous for you and more offensive to God than any of the other sins that were listed here. You got that? Your prideful self-assurance is more dangerous for you and it's more offensive to God than any of the other sins listed in these scriptures or any of the ones that I rattled off. Okay? Don't, Ever think that your righteousness is what made the difference? Because it had nothing to do with that. If you find yourself righteous before God today, it's because of what Jesus did. It's not because your track record's cleaner than your neighbor's or someone else you know. Though we all have to watch for this tendency and rep- uh, repent when we fall prey to it, I have personally known people in my life who just embody this sinful attitude of comparison and self-elevation. Um, is there anybody else here who has ever known anybody that thought, and don't say their name, we're going to speak evil of them, but um, have you ever known anybody that like, just thought they were the absolute best solution for, and best ever at absolutely everything? Anybody ever come across somebody like that? They're just, I am God's gift to everyone. You are blessed to be in my presence, right? You've got those folks. Um, that kind of overt, prideful boasting, it's, it's gross, really. Um, I, I mean, the, the people that I've been around like that, um, when, when I, when, you know, after I resist the, the temptation and want to, you know, hit them with something, then, then I just, like, I just feel dirty afterwards. I, like, I feel like I need to take a shower after I've stood in the filth of all their self-worship. It's just, it's gross. Um, but I need to say to us that it's no less gross when we are just better at covering up how awesome we think we are. And here's why, because God, who knows our thoughts and hearts, still has to experience the filth of our self-praise and self-emphasis. So just because we're good at masking um, our self-worship, it doesn't make it any better than the person that just isn't that good at hiding it, right? And so we need to make sure that's not what's going on. We'll need Christ's help to do that, uh, because we are all tempted to think more highly of ourselves than we ought. That's why Paul lovingly told us not to. Uh, and, and called us to appeal to God's grace and help of the Holy Spirit to do it because we'll need it. Um, this is one of the thousands of reasons that humility is so often emphasized in the Scriptures because it is the cure for what ails us. And it should be the natural outflow of realizing the love of Jesus displayed through His gospel. The gospel produces humility in people. If you realize the bad news and the good news in their proper context and where you fit in that story, you don't come out of that saying, I'm awesome. You come out of that saying, whew, I was in bad shape. Jesus is awesome. The gospel produces humble people. That's why we talk about it a lot. Okay, uh, we're in verses 4 and 5 now. Okay, let's read that together. But when the kindness of God, our Savior, and His love for mankind appeared... He saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. Okay, so the first thing I want to do here is I want to point out to you something. This is another like sovereign, serendipitous, beautiful thing that happened that I did not plan because I'm not that savvy. Uh, you may not know that on a traditional uh, church liturgical calendar. This Sunday is uh, Trinity Sunday, right? So it's a time that we would like recognize the fact that the Trinity is important in Christian faith. And so we find some very vibrant, just so happens uh, that we're in these verses today, we find some very vibrant Trinitarian language. So let's, let's look at that. Verse 4, it says, but when the kindness of God, our Savior, and his love for mankind appeared... Okay, so how did the love of God appear to mankind? Through Jesus. So we've got God our Savior who sent his love manifest in Christ, right? So there's uh, person number two of the Trinity. He saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy by the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit. We've got Father God, Son of God, Holy Spirit right here in these verses. So I just want to take a minute to say... 
uh, in light of the fact that God so beautifully ended us up in these verses on Trinity Sunday, I took that as maybe we should just take a minute and talk about this. Um, I'm not real smart, but <laughs> I can I can figure that much out. So um, it, it's interesting that the, the Trinity is a big deal. It's really important. Um, those who would deny the Trinity, they famously start with the fact that the word Trinity does not appear in the Bible, okay? I would say to that, neither does the word Bible. So if our criteria for assessing doctrine, like if that's the way we're going to go at it, we're on shaky ground to begin with, right? So I don't think that's a real good argument. The word Trinity is the best and closest word that we can come up with to explain the essence and nature of God that we see revealed in the Scriptures, Okay, and this is it is it's a, it's a heavy lift, and um, but it's it's really really worth talking about here. So what we believe, what what the word Trinity is explaining, what what it's describing is that we believe our God is one God in essence. You, you could you could substitute the word essence for godness, like God is God alone. There's one God, right? One God, but within that essence or within His godness exists. Three co-equal, co-eternal, and co-powerful persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Um, this is not a trivial matter. There, I've told you before, there are open-hand and closed-hand doctrines. There are, there are certain doctrines that pretty much, if you don't believe them, you're, you're not within like the safe haven of Orthodox Christianity. There's other stuff within the scriptures that like, I believe faithful Christians could maybe come to a different understanding on and still party together, still work together to accomplish gospel mission, right? Like, I don't know, um, the specifics of what you believe about the gifts of the Spirit and how all that works, like, you can believe different about that than me. Or, you know, some people think that um, pastors should, like, wear robes. Uh, I clearly don't believe that, but like that's cool. That's a whole like that might that's like a third tier issue. You want a robe? You robe it up. Go for it. And, and if somebody bought me a nice robe, I consider even wearing it. It's not like I'm totally against robes. I'm just saying like I don't think it's that big a deal. I'm not super high on the emphasis of what either I or you are wearing here. I'm more concerned about what's going on in our heart. Are we humbly uh, bringing ourselves before the King of Glory and, and submitting to what it is that He intends for us? Right. So that's kind of my deal on that. Uh, but there are first-tier, like, closed-hand doctrines that if you do not believe them, you're, you're not probably a Christian, right? And so, like, that the Bible is God's Word and authoritative for our lives, that belongs in that hand. That Jesus Christ himself, his finished work on the cross, is the only way that anybody will ever be reconciled to the God that made them. That is the way salvation happens, is faith in the finished work of Christ. That's a closed-hand doctrine. You don't believe that, you're outside of the fence, Right? I think the Trinity belongs in, in, in that hand. The Trinity's that big of a deal. Because, and, and you'll see why more as we keep going here. Um, it's really important. That's why I'm taking time to belabor the point. Um, King Jesus, who, by the way, I would consider an authority on this subject, right? Like God's essence and nature. Jesus, if I'm going to list, you know, who should I talk to to find out about God and what he's got going on? I'm going to put Jesus up at the top of that list, right? So, yes. Um, he saw fit to make this distinction, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, in Matthew 28. If you guys remember, he, he was commanding his men. This is right before he ascended. He said, go into all the world and baptize folks in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Like, Jesus wasn't a word waster. You get that, right? So if it didn't matter to make this distinction, he would have said, baptize people in the name of God. It matters. There is distinction. And this is not the only by far place where we see Jesus care about it, but it's probably one of the most pronounced. So Jesus cared about it. That instantly puts it in the important category for me, right? You guys with me now? You at least care that this is important. It's moved from that's a weird doctrinal thing that academics talk about to this is an important thing. Like, let's put it in the important bucket. You guys with me? Visually do that in your mind. Theological minutia, really important for my life, okay? The Trinity matters. Okay, now let's keep talking about it. All right. Uh, Augustine said this. I don't agree with everything he says, but this he's right about, and some of his work on the Trinity is the best in church history. Augustine commented, he said, uh, about the Trinity that in no other subject is error more dangerous or inquiry more laborious or the discovery of truth more profitable. I agree with him on that one. Thinking through this, thinking through the implications of Trinitarian doctrine is a laborious task, 
But it should also not come as a surprise to us that the totality of God's divine nature is beyond our grasp. You know what I mean when I say that? I, I get it. Like, to say that God is one and yet three, I'm with you, right? I'm not that bright. So automatically my brain hurts. Like, how does that work? But if we think that we're going to totally and in every way understand all of the mysteries of the God who spoke everything into creation and is the author of not only all of life but the redemptive purposes that he has woven from the beginning, if we think we're going to just get him all the way, we have sadly mistaken. We have sadly erred. We have strayed into some arrogance in a place that we don't belong. And I, for one, there are many times I am brought to a place where I have two options. I can either doubt because I don't understand that, or I can worship because I don't understand that. And every single time I come to the end of the road where I'm not, I, I got no more mental faculties to apply to this, I don't get how that works, but I see that it's true in the scriptures, I can go, hmm, what I've probably done here is figured out a place where I'm smarter than God in this Bible, so I should probably doubt God's existence. Burnt. No, I'm going to go, I just found a place where God's way bigger than me. Woo, and I'm glad about it because this is the guy I'm coming to when I got trouble. This is the guy that I'm taking him up on his offer to bring every prayer and supplication with thanksgiving to him when I'm broken and don't know what else to do. I don't want to go to somebody the same size as me, the same intelligence as me, the same power level as me. I want to go to someone bigger than me and stronger than me and smarter than me and deeper than me. And that's what I have in my God. So I'm thankful that he's Trinitarian. I can't totally get all that. I'm thankful that he's bigger than I could ever possibly conceive. Woo, I think I popped a rib head out on that one. <laughs> I just don't like it when people are cocky to God. <laughs> That's my father they're talking to. You ought to back down. Um, many, uh, okay, so other implications from this, um, why the Trinity matters, matters. Many people believe that God created humanity out of a need to love or be loved. You got that? Some people think that God needed either to love or to be loved. That's where we came from. That's not true. God has never needed anything. His love for us is an overflow of the love that was already perfectly expressed between the Father, Son, and the Spirit. He just had more love to give, so he made us. Decided to go through all the trouble that we would be, right? You've been a fair part of that trouble. <laughs> Your disobedience and rebellion, I know I have. Uh, I wouldn't have made me if it was, uh, you know, if I was him. I've been too much trouble, but yet he saw fit to do it, and he had enough love to, and patience to deal with me and to guide me and draw me in to be his own, call me his son. I'm real thankful for that. But God didn't need us, and that actually makes me love him more. I don't know what that does for you, but it, to know that he didn't need us, <laughs> but he just wanted us as much trouble as we are, that's, that's a beautiful thing. Makes me want to figure out more ways to lay down my life to serving. That's a, that's a really wonderful God. Uh, I'll give you this as well. What, why why the Trinity matters? I didn't write this, but it's some of the most concise wording that I've found on the matter. So I'm still talking to you about why the Trinity matters because it matters that much. The Trinity doctrine brings together in a coherent manner the great truths about God's historical redemptive actions. The Father sends the Son into the world to offer a propitiatory sacrifice on the cross. That is, a sacrifice that both appeases the Father's just wrath against sin and extends the Father's love and mercy by allowing repentant sinners to escape divine judgment. The incarnate Son is able to provide this atonement because He is both God and man. The God-man conquers death, sin, and hell through His glorious resurrection from the dead. The Holy Spirit is directly responsible for the repentant sinner's new birth in Christ through regeneration and the believer's life journey of sanctification. The three divine members of the Trinity make the entire plan of redemption possible. Do you understand the implication of that? I realize there was some lofty language there, but let me boil it down to this for you. No Trinity, no gospel. No Trinity, no plan of redemption. Now it's in the important bucket, right? That's a big deal. Because I really need the plan of redemption to work. Amen. Uh, also, as we've been learning in our class on Saturday mornings um, about lovingly engaging other faiths with the gospel, 
uh, nearly 100% of the errors that lead to false religions and cults that still retain some elements of Christianity, almost 100% of the reasons that that happens are misunderstandings about the Trinitarian nature of God and or the incarnation of Christ. Almost every single cult or offshoot, um, unfaithful kind of, but I still got some elements of, of the Bible or Christianity in it, um, it's almost always a misunderstanding of God's Trinitarian nature or the incarnation of Christ. So that makes this also a really big deal. I would also say, by the way, that most of those errors, understanding the Trinity and or the incarnation, most of those errors flow out of an attempt to eradicate mystery or stuff God and all he does into a logic box that we can neatly understand. If you study these cults and other religions that retain some part of Christianity, but either deny God's Trinitarian nature or deny the incarnation, it's because when they get to that doubt or worship part, they're not willing to just worship a God bigger than them. They feel like, okay, i got to figure out how to make this make sense, or else people aren't going to be able to follow it, right? So they'll, they'll try to figure out how to make the incarnation different than what it is, right? Because we have, we have Jesus, who is both 100% God and 100% man, and that's why he could step in and pay the price for us. Do you understand how that works? Do you understand, can you explain to me in very simple terms the hypostatic union? Nope. Is it true? Yup. And when you try to do something different so that we can make it understandable instead of worshiping God because there's certain parts of his character, nature, and redemptive plan that are too big for me to understand, you get, you get into problems. When people start to think about God's three but one, well... Oh, that hurts my brain. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to say that instead of that, which is the, what the overwhelming evidence of Scripture points to, instead I'll say, well, maybe it's one God who's kind of wearing different masks at different times and shows up in parts of the show as kind of different characters. Maybe, maybe that's what we're seeing. That doesn't work. That changes the whole deal. And the whole plan of redemption can't be pulled off if that's what's happening. That's not what the Scriptures show us, right? And so... Uh, again, humility is important. Uh, and I'll just sign and seal all that by saying, again, I'm glad God's bigger than me, and I'm glad I don't totally understand everything about him. I hope you are too. Because if I totally got him, it'd probably be hard to worship him. Amen. Okay, so the next line here tells us, um, he sa- verse 5, he saved us not on the basis of deeds, And so if you've been around here more than a couple minutes, you probably already know this, and thus it is one of the most precious truths in all of the world to you. Um, The reality is what this is telling us is that he went first, he loved first, not because we deserved it, but because his incomparable and undeniable and amazing love. Jesus made a way that by grace through faith we can be saved. It was not because of deeds, it was not because we deserved it, it was not because of something we did. It was simply because his love for us and desire for relationship with us compelled him to do it. Again, that's real beautiful. Jesus made a way that by grace through faith we can be saved. And this truth, it frees us to do good works completely selflessly and with pure motives. Now, I'm not going to say because somebody has heard the gospel or even has a, a functioning understanding of the pieces of the gospel that then... Um, they are totally free from the temptation to do something good with an impure motive. But what I'm saying is it's absolutely impossible to do good works with a pure motive without this freeing truth of the gospel of Christ. I'll break it down for you. Here's Here's the truth about it. When we do something good, the reason we are free to do good works with a completely selfless motive is this. We know we aren't paying him back because we can't. We aren't earning his love or his forgiveness Because we can't. We are doing good not so he will love us, but because he has loved us, right? That changes everything. It changes the reason I help somebody. It changes the reason I love somebody. It changes the reason I sacrifice uh, something for the sake of somebody else. Because if I was doing it for any other reason, if I was doing it for any reason other than gratitude for what Christ has already done, then there's going to be an in it for me. 
Maybe I don't totally get the gospel. Maybe I still believe a little bit that if I, if I do stuff like that, I'm going to earn more gold stars on my chore chart in heaven. Maybe I just have a little bit left of that remnant belief. So do you see how that taints the motive of what I'm doing? I'm not loving you, helping you, caring for you, doing whatever it is, totally just because God's been good to me, and so I want to be good to you. I have this little bit of selfish motive mixed in here. I think I'm getting myself something in heaven. I think it's going to make my mansion a little bigger. Some of the other stupid stuff people say. No. No. The only reason I'm going to help you, love you, take care of you, sacrifice something so that I can consider you more important than myself, the, the, the right reason for any of that to happen is because Jesus did all that for me. And it just makes me want to. No strings attached. Not even in my heart. Not even in the deepest part of my heart. Not, not get this, I'm not doing this because it makes me feel good about myself. How many people do you think do good stuff because it gives them a good feeling? That's a, here, here's what the Bible says about that. Your righteousness, aside from it being fueled by gratitude because of the gospel, any good work you do is a filthy rag. I didn't understand that for a long time. I used to think, when I was a young Christian, I'd be like, what's the problem? Like, if they're doing good stuff, cool, right? Like, no, because motive matters. It isn't just what you do, it's why you do it. And so if your motive, if any part of it is mixed in there, this, this idea that I'm, God's going to love me more, or I'm going to earn some of my own salvation, or any of this, this, this messed up stuff that can, can weave its way in there, it taints the motive and it makes that good work impure. The gospel frees us to do good works out of completely beautiful, pure motives. Does that mean you will always then? No. You'll probably still do something good at some point because somewhere in your little head, you think there might be a benefit for you doing that. Well, then you can repent. But you have no potential to do a good work with any kind of pure motive without it being fueled by the truth of the gospel. I hope you see that today. I don't know if I explained it well, but uh, that's a freeing truth. There is no possibility for a pure motive for good works outside of gratitude for the grace and mercy of God, period. If you don't totally get that yet, just think about it more. Pray about it. I promise it's true and it matters. The next, uh, the next line here says, by the, uh, the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. Many see this language of uh, the washing of regeneration as an argue for baptismal regeneration, which means that... Um, not only do you need to be saved by grace through faith in Christ, but that you also need to be baptized to be saved. There are some people that believe that. Uh, you can believe this or not, but there's somebody sitting here today uh, that was in a conversation today with somebody about this and called me today to talk about this and had no idea that we'd be in these scriptures today. Again, you can chalk all this stuff up to coincidence, but at a certain point it doesn't work anymore. It just happens to me too much. So God's really faithful. Um, and so... Uh, I'm glad that we have an opportunity to deal with this right here. Uh, baptism is an outward symbol of the internal washing that happens when we are saved, uh, when we're transformed and we're given a new heart and new desires, right? So there is a washing of regeneration. When God comes and changes us, when the Holy Spirit comes and takes this heart of stone that was in us and makes it a heart of flesh, there is a washing and a regeneration that happens. That's an internal thing. And when we're baptized, when we're water baptized, we're symbolizing all that, right? We're sharing with Christ in his death. And if you, if you read all the scriptures that talk about water baptism, it's so soaked with symbolism that there's, there's just no way to come away with an understanding of it other than it is an outward declaration of an inward change. And I know that uh, in Acts, for example, uh, again, Peter just, just going off. He is the man. Like Acts 2 um, he's standing in the street telling everybody, you killed Jesus, you guys are all going to hell and you better stop. And they're like, whoa, what do I need to do to be saved, right? Like, that's just some of my favorite verses. You clearly like them too. No, it, it was good. I would have really liked to have been there. Um, I'm like, yes, Peter, get him, right? If I had a time machine, I would totally go back to that moment. Um, and so they're like, what do, I, what do I have to do to be saved? And he says, um, he says, you got to repent, man, and be baptized, right? And so some people see that coupled together, and they're like, well, okay, does that mean like baptism is a part of this salvation process? And that, that's a, first of all, 
to take a verse like that and just build a doctrine off of the, the one situation. We have to look at the, the totality of what the scriptures say. And right, everything else that we see does not lead us to an understanding that water baptism is required for salvation. I mean, that makes Ephesians two not make sense. That makes a whole bunch of stuff that Jesus said not make sense. Um, there, there's too much other stuff that tells us very clearly. It is by grace through faith in Christ alone that we are saved, right? And so um, I think what Peter was doing there is he knew that some in that crowd, maybe they were like hyped up or emotionally struck by what he was saying and like they were right then ready to maybe, um, you know, mill about with the crowd that was going to follow Jesus. But when it came down to the time of like the cost that they probably weren't going to be there. And so in that day, for them to be water baptized, for them to publicly say, yes, I belong to Jesus, your whole life was going to be different. It wasn't like here, man. It don't cost us a whole lot yet in America to say, yes, I'm going to follow Jesus. You're not instantly going to be like stigmatized to the point where you might be ran out of town and or killed. For them, it was like that. And so Peter, I think Peter was kind of preemptively understanding there. Some of these guys aren't serious, and we'll find out who is and isn't. <laughs> by who's willing to stand up and be water baptized and say, yes, I've had this change happen on the inside of me, right? So that, that I mean, that's, I'm not going to go through a whole apologetic, you know, anti-baptismal regeneration sermon. My point is, we believe here, because I believe this is what the scriptures teach, that baptism is not required for salvation, but is required for obedience, right? You see the thief on the cross, he says, surely you're the son of God. Jesus says what? Today you'll be with me in paradise. Did they pull dude off the cross and baptize him real quick and then throw him back up there? I don't think so. So I don't think baptism is required for salvation. However, I do think if you have the opportunity as you become a follower of Christ and you have the opportunity, you absolutely should be baptized. It should not be minimized. It's important. It's, it's a beautiful thing. It should happen every time it's possible. But if it's not, I don't think somebody's going to you know, get to the gate and Peter be like, all dry, buddy, out of here, right? <clears throat> okay, um, off we go. Where are we at? We're talking about baptismal regeneration. What did I do? Okay, um, and, and I just want to tell you that uh, I have never been around a group of people that provide undeniable evidence for the internal washing away of the old filth and desires and sinful attitudes as I have you guys. Uh, I want you guys to know that there's a different person than I was referencing earlier that's sitting in this congregation right now, today, that received potentially life-shattering information yesterday and within minutes was praising God for the opportunity to trust him and persevere. And he's here today full of joy and gratitude for the unchanging faithfulness of his God and King. And I want to say to you that that's not normal, but it happens here all the time. <laughs> and... Uh, you could maybe misunderstand that and say, wait, hold on, Pastor Vince, are you saying we're weird? Yes. Yes, I am, and it's amazing, and I'm really glad to be a part of it. I've never been around a group of people that, that show proof and evidence of the fact that stuff changes on the inside. There is an internal washing that happens when Jesus comes and does something to a person. When you encounter the risen Christ, there are marks of the change. And when somebody receives news that would crush a man normally, and within minutes is joyfully raising his hands to say, thank God for this opportunity to persevere. Hopefully, someday, I can, I can testify to somebody else of what the Lord has done as he carries me through this, this thing that was meant to crush me. That's not normal. That is not even close to normal. That's not how we think. And I'm just thankful for it. I'm thankful that this stuff is real, that it's not all just theory, but that and I'm glad that I run with a group of people that is, is living proof to me all the time. That, that Jesus is serious and this is real. And uh, I'm just thankful for it. It encourages me. Uh, verse 6. Um, it says, whom, whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. Right? Again, so Jesus' emphasis. This is just some jam-packed scripture here. Uh, verse 6, really what it's telling us is we would never have tasted the sweet presence of God's Holy Spirit in our hearts and lives if it were not for the perfect, redemptive work of our Savior King Jesus. We would not have ever tasted the sweet presence of God's Holy Spirit in our lives if it wasn't for Jesus. This is why the Holy Spirit is primarily concerned with glorifying Jesus 
he is our helper. The Bible says that. The Holy Spirit is our helper. Uh, but he's not our helper so that we can meander through this life with no purpose. He's our helper because we have a mission that is bigger than any of us could accomplish without his help. And that's telling the whole world about the hope that is found in Christ. So the Holy Spirit is our helper, but his primary concern is lifting Jesus high. And that's because Jesus is the one that accomplished the work that allows us to have any interaction with the Holy Spirit whatsoever. You see that? It's beautiful. So I'm thankful for all of it. Verse 7. So that being justified by his grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. I want to key in on this word heirs. This is kind of another beautiful picture that we don't hear as often to describe the way we're able to relate to God through the gospel. Um, if somebody receives a big inheritance from their parents or grandparents, why did they get that inheritance? Is it because they worked hard for years and paid the price to amass that wealth that is being passed down? Is that why they get the inheritance? No. Nope. Why do they get that inheritance? Because they just happen to be in the right family. Come on, man. I'm an heir of the hope of eternal life. Because I'm running with the right one and his name is Jesus. And he can pass down to me an inheritance of much greater value than anybody's grandma, aunt, uncle, or anybody else. A much greater inheritance than jewels or land or money or anything else that can be passed down through generations. Because I'm made an heir through the finished work of Christ, I have the hope of eternal life. And an, and an instant command to Go to as many people as possible and share that inheritance. See, that's the other difference. You might be tempted. You get an inheritance from grandma. You know, you might be real worried about how to spend that on yourself and figure out what to do with it and do I invest it. So that's not what we do with our, our gospel inheritance. We're instantly supposed to figure out how do I get this shared with other people. And that's part of the effects of what happens in us when we receive it. We're so full of joy, we want to share it with others. I'm just happy I'm in the right family, not because I deserved it. I didn't do the work. I didn't, I didn't make a way for there to be hope for eternal life. I did none of it. I just received it. Thankful. I think it's amazing that people will reject the gospel. I, I can't, it's, it's so hard for me to understand. It's like getting a call from a lawyer. Just put yourself in this place. Let's say somehow they track down your lost long, that's, I just said that in reverse, your long lost aunt or uncle or whatever it is, some relative uh, had a whole bunch of money and they die and somebody tracks you down, finds out you're the next of kin, they call you, get you on the phone and say, hey man, there's 10 million bucks here you're supposed to inherit. You're the one, man, you get it. We got a check here with your name on it. Come and get it, right? Part, part of the problem with this analogy is the fact there's so many scams out there. You're like, yeah, I'm not buying that. But let's, I mean, the reality is that could happen and it could be legit and I think the way people treat the gospel, which is of much greater worth than 10 million bucks, is they just, they just can't be bothered with going to pick up the check, right? All the work's been done. We, can you just believe the good news, man, that somebody wanted to give you this? <laughs> and a lot of times people won't. They're just, eh, I don't need that. What a bummer. Because then the lawyer gets the 10 million. I know you guys are sad about that because nobody likes lawyers. I don't know why. I've, I've known really nice lawyers. Um... Okay, verse 8 <clears throat> says, This is a trustworthy statement, and concerning these things, I want you to speak confidently so that those who have believed God will be careful to engage in good deeds. Paul is telling Titus to speak about these things with holy boldness and with confidence, not to be, you know, weak kneed and jelly spined about it. He's got to speak boldly. Uh, and, and here we see again that the gospel is not just for unbelievers, because this letter is being written to Titus, and it's intended to be read to the churches, and so we see, what's he telling them to say here? He's saying, this is, all this stuff he's talking about, this, he has saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration, the renewing of the Holy Spirit. See, all that could be classified as kind of like basic gospel stuff, right? We're just, and, and some of you may have been sitting here thinking this, like, man, I hear this every week. That's the point, and that's what he says to Titus. I want you to boldly and with confidence all the time, talk about these things because these things are what is going to lead these people to, with a pure motivation, do the good deeds that they were made for. 
The gospel fuels gratitude. Gratitude fuels good deeds. And it's the only way that it doesn't end up being filthy rags in the eyes of our Father. The gospel is not just for unbelievers. This letter was written to believers. And he said, Titus, I want you to speak these things confidently all the time. I want you to preach the gospel all the time. The gospel isn't just for those who haven't heard it. The saints need to be gospelized all the time because there is a counter-narrative all the time pulling at our attention, telling us, no, man, you got to do better. No, you got to do it. You got to do it. You're going to get what you get. You got to go do it. You got to get it. You got to work harder. And, and, and some things in life, you do need to work harder. Some things in life, some of you do need to quit being lazy. Go get what you need, man. Go for it. Yes, work. But salvation isn't one of them. <laughs> right standing with God isn't one of them. The only difference you're going to make on it is whether or not you will believe that Jesus Christ himself did what was necessary, right? That's the bottom line. And who wouldn't be motivated to love and good works when we have news this good? Because the good news only tastes as sweet as it does when people properly understand the bad news. And, and see, here, here again, um, some, of you, some of you might have folded your Bible up because you've been here a few times and, and, you, and you think you know what I'm about to say and you think, man, you know, I, pff, I could say this, but here's, here's the problem with that kind of thinking. We, we see a lot here about this inner washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. We see a lot about good deeds being motivated by gratitude. So yeah, you know what? Maybe you do know the gospel front to back. Maybe you've heard it thousands of times. But if, it, if what has happened inside of you is what is described right here, if you have been washed on the inside and regenerated, made a new person by the power of the Holy Spirit because of the finished work of Christ, then this good news that comes after the bad news will for you, every single time you hear it, add gratitude into that well of your heart. You will not be able to, th- th- this, these words will be the, like the most beautiful music you have ever heard, and they will not be able to strike your frame without a visceral response. It should never, ever be able to be a common thing to us that Jesus, who was perfect, died in our place when we didn't deserve it. Ever. It shouldn't be a common thing shouldn't be possible. And every single time I could possibly even come to think about it. This is why we will take communion when we're done with this. Because Jesus knew that we have this temptation to think more highly of ourselves than we ought, to think I've got this all figured out, to think I've heard the gospel enough. Why does he want us as often as we possibly can to come to the Lord's table and be reminded of the simple elements of his sacrifice? What do you think that's for? Because we need it. Because we need it. Because we need to come and again celebrate the fact that somebody did the work that we never could have done. That somebody rescued us when we could have never ever rescued ourselves. That somebody gave us hope when we were completely hopeless. Forever. We will spend much of eternity, if not all of it, just rejoicing in this basic gospel. That's why we practice a lot here. Amen. So the bad news is you're not perfect. Uh, If you're here for the first time today and you've never heard that, please don't think I'm just trying to be purposely abrasive, but the reality is um, what the Bible teaches is that the most loving thing you can do for somebody is tell them the truth about reality. And maybe you don't agree with that. Maybe you've been taught something counter to that. And I understand that, but I'm just asking you to go out on a limb with me for a second and think that potentially telling you the truth about the way things really are is more loving than just letting you believe whatever it is you believe. Um, because the reality is God created humanity. Uh, God gave us certain instructions. We rebelled against those instructions, and because of that, every single person from that point on has been stained by sin. All of us are sinners by nature and choice. None of us could look in the mirror and be honest with ourselves and say, yes, I am perfect in every way. Thought, word, and deed. I have never done anything contrary to the commands of God's word. None of us can do that. And so that puts us all together in a really bad spot. It's really bad news, right? Because what most people do with that information is they say, right, yes, none of us is perfect. And they'll say things like, nobody's perfect. In response to somebody saying like, hey, you should submit yourself to Christ and repent. They're like, hey, man, nobody's perfect. They think it's like this group get out of jail free card. But the fact that nobody's perfect is not a group get out of jail free card. It's a group everybody goes to hell card. They don't have that one in Monopoly yet, do they? Everyone go to hell. No, that's not in there. But that's what it is. The fact that none of us is perfect means that all of us is separated from God. The issue is God's perfection. 
we can't be in relationship with God, which is what is required to spend eternity with him, if we are separated from him by sin. He's so perfect and holy that some of the language in the scriptures, it talks about his presence in such a way, like in Malachi, that he's a refining fire. Like, he is so holy and so perfect that for imperfection to come into his presence, it just bursts into flame, right? So you could argue about whether that's really the issue. The bottom line is our imperfect, sinful selves cannot be in his perfect presence. That is a problem because I know I'm imperfect and I know I have absolutely no way whatsoever in and of myself to make myself perfect again. Can everyone come with me down the logic trail that far? Not perfect, can't fix it. Boom, that's really bad news. That's what makes the good news so sweet. That's why there's 66 books that are really about one thing. It's this, the good news. <laughs> Mankind is in real trouble because of sin. Jesus comes to solve that problem. He's born of a virgin, lives a perfect life. The life that we should have, but didn't. Then he dies the death that all of us deserve in our place for our sins. Because God is perfectly, completely, and totally loving, but he is also completely and totally just. Cannot turn his face away and just... Let us all off the hook, and if we really think about it, we wouldn't want him to. Somebody had to pay the price, right? Jesus was willing to do that. And because of our understanding of the Trinity, we know this isn't divine child abuse. We know that this is the redemptive plan that God had hatched even before he made us. Because you better believe, he knew before he made us that we'd fall. And you can think, you can think about that how you want. Some people take that to its... To its a logical end where it doesn't belong. They're thinking, well, if God knew everything that was going to happen, well, why didn't he just do things a different way or not put the tree there or not give us an option or whatever? Like, okay, problem one with that is now we're back over into I'm smarter than God territory. Whenever you find yourself in there, just hit reverse real fast and get out because it's not the right place to be. A. B, even with my finite understanding, I could think that if God is about... Um, expressing, giving, and receiving love, like if that's a big deal for him, I could see him creating people that had an option whether they were going to obey him or not. Because if I was to, you know, have some kids, um, let's say the kids I have, if I was to just every single day, uh, you know, before I left for work, if I, if I smacked them once in the side of the head and said, you better when I get home, you better run up and you better hug me, and you better tell me you love me, or it's going to be a lot worse than that. If I did that every single day, and I walk in the door, and here they come, love you, Dad, right? Like, what does that matter? What, what, have, I, what have I accomplished? Nothing. I, I've, I've trained them through fear to just do what I want them to do. They don't really have an option because they, they know that something bad's going to happen if they don't do it. But let me ask you this. If I don't do the first thing, if, if what I do is I pray with them before I leave the house and I kiss them on their little heads and I say, I love you, I'll see you when I get home. And then when I come home and I walk in the door and they hear the door crack in whatever room they're in, I start hearing the little pitter-patter of feet, dad, and here they come, right? And, I, and literally, like if I've got something in my hands, I have to set it down because they're going to tackle me. Dad, I love you. I missed you today. What do you, what do you think that means for me? How precious and special and meaningful is that to me that my kids love me like that? I'd do anything. I'd do anything. To, I mean, I wish I could just hit repeat on that like Groundhog's Day. It's, it's wonderful. And I'm an imperfect, sinful, wretched man and dad. And I get that much. I can understand that much. I think what God wanted with us was relationship. I think it's pretty clear if you understand and, and take a look at what the scriptures have to say. And I think he wanted to love us and I think he wanted us to love him. And I think he has set things up in such a way that uh, anybody who really thinks about it should love him. Anybody who understands that they were completely hopeless and unable to fix imperfection, uh, that that person would, would understand that Jesus making a way that that could happen is, is reason for love, is reason for affection and allegiance. And so... Jesus did. He died on the cross in our place for our sins. He paid the price each of us should have. But the beauty is that uh, death couldn't hold him because he was perfect. Death had no claim to him. And so he rose three days later, victorious. That proved that everything that he had said beforehand was true. Stuff like, tear down this temple and I'll raise it again in three days. Yeah, that happened. Stuff like, um, you know, 
I'm the son of God and and I'm going to be the savior of the world. Yeah, that happened too, right? So everything, all the weird stuff that he claimed that people, you know, what they ended up killing him for um, was absolutely true. He is the king of glory. He is the Messiah. Um, And he came back from the dead to prove it. And so that's the question today. That's what makes the difference between somebody who is a part of the family of God and isn't. It's not, have you done enough good things or have you done few enough bad things, it's will you trust in that gospel message, and I invite you to do it today. I invite you to quit trusting whatever it is you've been trusting in. I'm asking you to honestly assess how's that been going, and I'm not trying to be trite or or cocky with you, but but I just remember what it was like when I tried to do it all in my own strength, when I tried to kind of run my own life and be my own king and be my own God. I remember how that went. It wasn't good, and I'm asking you today to surrender to the God that made you, that has proved that he loves you. And to, by faith, become a son or a daughter of God. You can do that today. You can declare your need for Jesus. You can let him know, I'm a sinner and I need help. He will come and he'll be your Lord. And uh, we would invite you to that today because we love you. May we be a people who are submissive and obedient to the authorities in our life up until the point where they stand in opposition to our God and his word. And then may we have the spine to disobey in a way that will glorify our Father. May we be a people who are humble in our self-estimation and gracious in our judgment of others. May we embrace and celebrate the truths about our Heavenly Father that are too great for us to comprehend. And may we forever rejoice in the fact that we are heirs of the hope of eternal life. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we come before you in the name of Jesus. Lord God, we thank you for these words. We thank you for the words of truth. We thank you for the power that is in these scriptures. We thank you that you, uh, you have washed us on the inside, that you've changed us. We thank you for the evidence all around us all the time in the lives of our church family that uh, you are a God who literally changes people, that when, when folks submit their life and their heart to you, that things are different than they were before, and that it's true and it's real and it's 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 so obvious when the troubles of life and the storms of life come when we can be anchored in your word when we're not blown about but when we're able to stand steadfast we know that that's your power working in us because it's not our natural inclination lord i thank you that you are triune in your nature i thank you that uh, you've had a redemptive plan that involved every part of your essence and character i thank you lord god that You are bigger than I can comprehend. I am literally and actually thankful for that today, that you are so much bigger, that your thoughts are higher, that your ways are deeper, that there's nobody like you. I thank you, Lord, that I'm not as smart as you are. I thank you that I'm not even close in power to you. I thank you that you are far, far, far above me in every way. I thank you, Lord, that frees me to worship you and to trust you. I thank you, Lord Jesus, for the perfection of your word. I thank you, Lord Jesus, for the perfection of your promises. I ask you, Lord, to help us to live in light of them. Help us to trust you. You're perfect and holy and wonderful. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Love City Church, located in Cincinnati, Ohio. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. To give or find out more about Love City Church, visit www.mylovecitychurch.org.